Well, I have to confess that as we were laying out this first sermon series in the book of James, this morning was the morning that in some ways most exhilarated me in thinking about and in some ways intimidated and terrified me as I thought about what it is that we would talk about this morning because this morning's text and this morning's talk has the highest degree in this whole series, the highest degree of possibility for me to fall into the occupational hazards of being a preacher. The number one occupational hazard, maybe not number one, one of the highest occupational hazards being alienating the very people that you're trying to talk to. Um, Because I, I was exhilarated about this morning because I think the text digs into some things that we really need to talk about and terrified by it because studies have repeatedly shown that people's biggest frustrations with the church include two that are going to be violated heavily this morning. Number one, people get frustrated that all the church wants to do is talk about money. And in the text we're looking at this morning, all James wants to do is talk about money. And number two, people get frustrated by the fact that the church is filled with hypocrites. People who don't actually do the things that they say a life of faith is all about. And I am telling you on the front end of this sermon, I am somebody who acknowledges the truthfulness of what James says in this passage and acknowledges that I don't see that same truthfulness being lived out in my life. I'm coming into this sermon as a hypocrite. I'm going to say things that I have not figured out how to live wholeheartedly. So as we talk this morning about the book of James, I don't want you to hear me preaching at you about stuff that you all need to sort out somehow. I want you to hear me talking as a fellow traveler with you in this journey of faith. And we're trying to figure out together what this looks like. So we've started this series two weeks ago uh, by listening to James, this wise, loving, empathetic pastor, open this letter to a bunch of parishioners by saying, consider it pure joy when you experience difficulties of every kind. You should consider it a supreme privilege whenever you find yourself being mugged by the circumstances of your life in a way that's testing the very metal of your character, of your faith, by putting the screws to you. When you find yourself in those challenging circumstances, you consider it a supreme privilege because what is actually happening in that moment, as hard as life is, is that God is growing the strength of your faith so that you can become more like Jesus and live a life of love, the one that we've all been called to, of loving God and loving people and the whole nine yards. That's the privilege of what God is doing in your life during those seasons. Now, the question that we looked at last week is, how do I know, how can I be sure that I'm responding in the right way to my circumstances? How can I be sure that I'm doing the right things so that God can strengthen my faith and grow me to look more like Jesus? And Jeff talked to us about this last week, that, it, that if anybody lacks wisdom, if you don't have the proper understanding to know how to live rightly in the midst of your circumstances, you should just ask God. 
who, ha- who has a single-minded devotion to giving wisdom to everybody who asks. And by the way, the text says, without finding fault. God does not nitpick your life and say, oh, well, this person's such a scrub. They don't deserve wisdom. You don't have to earn it by getting your crap together. God is eager, single-mindedly devoted to giving you the wisdom for how to navigate life well, especially in the difficult and stressful times, regardless of whether you have your act together or not, provided, Jeff told, provided you are single-mindedly devoted to living the wisdom of God in your life. You want nothing other than to live the life that God has for you. Well, with all of that theory in the background, in this passage we're looking at today, James digs down into the most relevant concrete example he could think of for his readers, and it's probably one of the most relevant concrete examples for us as well. In James chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. When James says humble circumstances, that word in Greek refers to people who are unimportant, who have a low social status. Nobody cares about them. People who are insignificant. It can refer to people who are weak, even people who are being oppressed and persecuted. It's referring to people who are nobodies in society's eyes. And in particular, in this passage, James means people who are poor. Now, you know that because in the very next verse that we're going to read in just a few minutes, James contrasts people in humble circumstances with the rich. It's very clear that what he means are people who are of low social standing, who are unimportant, insignificant, and weak and oppressed in culture because of their poverty. That's who he's talking about. Remember, he's writing this letter to a a church of people who have now, who used to all live in Jerusalem and go to the same church, but they had to run from their lives to flee from persecution, leaving everything behind, all their wealth, their entire life they left behind. They fled the country with only the clothes on their back, and now they're living as refugees in a foreign land, as strangers who don't speak a strange language, who know absolutely nobody, who are working minimum wage jobs and being mistreated and taken advantage of and exploited and whatever. These are people who have to drive everything and are now living lives of extreme poverty. And James says to them, you ought to take pride in the exalted status of your extreme poverty. That, That ought to be a source of boasting for you. You ought to brag about that. You got to bask in the glory of the privileged position that you live in of getting to experience extreme poverty. People should be jealous of you because of the poverty you're getting to experience. What on earth is James talking about? Well, remember that the whole point of this letter or the whole point of this passage is that James says whenever you experience trials of many kinds, including extreme poverty and persecution. 
You ought to consider that a supreme privilege because it is in the midst of those circumstances that if you respond with wisdom, God will make your faith strong and he will transform you into the image of Christ and you will get to live a life that looks like Jesus, a life of loving God and loving yourself as someone who's loved by God and loving the people around you and loving the world. And James says there's no better way to live than that. So he's saying to his community, saying to our community, if you're here this morning and you're stuck in a cycle of poverty, God has not forgotten you. God is not ignoring you. God is not punishing you. Instead, you are honored with the privileged position in the community of faith of being people who are perfectly postured to have your strength, your, your faith grow strong and to be transformed into the image of Jesus if you respond with wisdom. Because your life in the midst of the stress and anxiety of poverty, your life is open to God. You are Unlike many other people in the community, you are supremely postured in an attitude of dependence, reliant on his provision, open to Christ. And as you draw near to God in the midst of your circumstances, God will draw near to you and you'll experience his closeness and be transformed into the image of Christ. It is not an embarrassment um, or a punishment or humiliation to experience poverty. It is a privilege because of the way it'll transform your faith which is probably sounds super rich to people who are actually in our community stuck in cycles of poverty coming from somebody who has never in his life had to worry about where his next meal is coming from like I get I get how that sounds right that <laughs> I'm standing up here saying you know you should consider yourself lucky that you don't have to deal with all the money and stuff that, you know, I've got in my life. It's such a stress and a headache. You're so fortunate that you don't have to deal with that stuff. That's garbage. What James actually says about the rich is much harsher than what he says about the poor. This is what he says in verse 10. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. James is with this metaphor of wildflowers describing a word picture that would have made his readers nostalgic for their home in Israel because um, the scene that he's painting is very common in Israel. In, in many parts of the country where these, his readers are from, but they had to flee to other countries, in many parts of the country, the countryside is actually carpeted with wildflowers. Uh, flowers like anemone. Uh, I'll show you a picture of a field filled with anemone, this red flower that will in places just go on as far as the eye can see, growing wild. Or flowers like cyclamen, 
the sort of purple, tulipy, lily-like kind of flower that's actually the national flower of Israel that's so prevalent in the countryside. And, and these flowers have this way of beautifying the entire country until the scorching heat of the summer sun, until the ferocious Sirocco wind that stirs up in the Sahara Desert and blows across the Middle East, even through Israel, up to, with gusts up to 100 kilometers an hour. And in the spring and in the fall, this Sirocco wind will blow like a blast furnace unrelentingly, three and four days at a time, all day and all night, burning up everything in its path. And this wind leaves in its wake this, this trail of dead wildflowers. Everything has been burnt to a crisp. And it's all wilted and dead. And the flowers, the only thing that's left to do with the flowers is for people to gather them up and use them as fire starters in their bread ovens. James says, here's the true condition of the wealthy, of people who actually have money and stuff and status. All of that stuff is temporary and fleeting and fading. All of it can vanish in a heartbeat. It's not safe. It's not secure. There's no security to be found in wealth. You can't build your life on that. Because you'll spend your time and effort and energy and attention accumulating wealth and making your life comfortable and easy and luxurious. And all of a sudden, you'll hit a recession. The market will crash like in 2008. A sudden bankruptcy, a sudden illness, and you can't go to work. Suddenly you're being sued or the divorce goes through and everything that you thought you had is gone. You can't build a life on that. Even if your wealth lasts with you to the very end of your life, what then? Right? What then? What happens at death? All of your wealth is now gone. Left to be distributed to other people who will pick it up and use it to kindle the fires of their own comfortable lives. And when they die, they'll leave it behind. This is the irony. This is the foolishness of wealth is that we live this game of life accumulating and gathering uh, wealth and stuff and status and money making our lives comfortable and easy. We, we play this game like we're playing for keeps and we're not. As one writer said at the end of the game, all the pieces go back in the box and at death, all of us are in exactly the same financial situation. But we're not all in the same faith situation. So James says, the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Not in their home, not in their income, not in their car, not in their job title, not in their club memberships, not in their social standing, their, their pride. Those who have money and standing and status and stuff, their pride should be in their humiliation. Now, it's hard to know exactly what James means by humiliation, it could mean any number of things. It could mean refer to the humiliation of belonging to a community of faith where money and status and standing and stuff is all fundamentally irrelevant to how people get treated. 
The church ought to be the one place in the world where your money buys you nothing. Where your standing, your status in society is worth zero. The humiliation of being super important out there and being a nobody just like everybody else in here. Or maybe James is referring to the humiliation of being mocked and excluded by your society peers, the people that you rub shoulders with out there who share your wealth and stuff and status and standing in society, the people that are part of your socioeconomic class, part of your social class, who all mock and exclude you for hanging out with losers like the people in the church. In the first century, 90% of the church, I'm making up that number, but it sounds impressive. The vast majority of the church was made up of poor people and slaves, people who had nothing. The church was a club for losers. And people who had money and status and stuff and standing in society, when they decided to join the church, they were mocked and ridiculed and excluded by their social circles. Maybe that's the humiliation that James says, that should be the glory, the opportunity to participate in a community of faith and to be excluded by everybody else. Remember too, James is writing to a community of people, many of whom have lost it all because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their persecution, but some of whom haven't. Some of whom still have enough money to dress up well for church, as we'll see in chapter two. Some people have enough money to be engaged in business travel, as we'll see in chapter four. There are people who are still making a comfortable living for themselves. And James is probably subtly reminding them that that may not last forever, that some have and others will end up losing everything if they are faithful in their devotion to Jesus Christ. And James says, if you lose everything because of your faith, that is the reason for celebration. You should take pride, boast and brag about being reduced to somebody who is unimportant, insignificant, weak, oppressed, persecuted, and poor because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You see what James is doing, right? He's flipping our entire cultural value system on its head, right? The truly privileged people in the community of faith, the truly important and noble, the the people that we ought to admire and aspire to be are the poor, whose circumstances God is using to make their faith strong and to grow them to be like Jesus as they respond in faithfulness and wisdom to him. Those are the truly privileged people, the ones who ought to be envied in the community. Um, For the wealthy, they ought to aspire to that status of humiliation, the status of having nothing, because that's where the glory is. That's, what it, that's where we are best positioned to be honored by God. You see how it works. The people, whether you're rich or poor, the people who are honored in the community of faith are the ones who are humiliated, the ones who are humble, the ones who are unimportant, insignificant, weak, oppressed, persecuted, poor, the nobodies. Those are the ones who are most highly honored. And since 
This is what James is driving at. Since humility and wealth don't often pair well together, his primary concern is for those who have money and status and stuff and standing because they're most at risk at missing out on what God wants to do in their life. Because the teaching of the scriptures, the teaching of James's brother Jesus, is that having wealth makes faith harder. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jeff talked last week about the difference between a single-minded devotion to Christ and a double minded devotion to Christ. I've heard somebody describe it as the difference, uh, maybe Jeff did, I don't remember, the difference between uh, being a two-foot Christian where you are like all in with God versus being a one-foot Christian where you want, you know, one foot in a life of faith, but you kind of want to keep one foot in the life that you have in the world as well. You want to be devoted to Jesus, but you also kind of want to live a life of comfort and ease with your money and status and stuff and standing. Jesus says it's not possible to wholeheartedly follow Jesus and care about money. You will either wholeheartedly follow Jesus and not care at all what happens to your money, or you will care about what happens to your money and by definition, not wholeheartedly follow Jesus because Jesus doesn't have your whole heart. You cannot care about your life with God and your lifestyle at the same time. Now I know for those who have money, I have enough to be comfortable the instinctive response is to say, no, I don't care what happens to my money. I care wholeheartedly about Jesus. The problem with that response is that Jesus also says that people who have money are in the worst possible condition to assess their own spiritual health. Revelation chapter 3, James, Jesus says this. He says, you say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is saying these words to a church in Laodicea, which was a very wealthy city in the ancient world. It was kind of like a New York City type place. It was the banking center of the ancient world, kind of the Swiss banks were all in Laodicea. It was a fashion center like Milan and Paris. It was a medical center. They had grown world famous, especially for their treatments of eye disease. They developed this eye salve that was said to cure certain forms of blindness. And, and as a result of all of this activity in the city, many of the people were extravagantly wealthy. And Jesus says the problem with being extravagantly wealthy is that it kind of deceives you into thinking that everything is fine with your life. Wealth distorts your vision. You are not able to see your true spiritual condition. Jesus says to them, you think you're rich, but you are spiritually bankrupt. You think you can see that you're spiritually insightful, but in reality, you are blind to your own condition. 
You're blind to the life Jesus has called you to. He says, you think that you are all put together like you're dressed in Armani. Jesus says, your faith life is tattered rags. So much so, he says, you're wretched and pitiful. So much so that your spiritual shabbiness is heartbreaking to Jesus. The thing about wealth, having money and stuff and status and standing creates spiritual disability in a person's life. And so the thing is, if that's true, that having money and stuff and status and standing, if that creates spiritual disability, isn't it worth it for us to figure out ways to overcome that? Right? Like if you had, if you discovered suddenly that your home was filled with asbestos or black mold and your house was compromising the respiratory health of your entire family, you would spare no expense to immediately have your house absolutely cleaned of the thing that was compromising your health. Or if you came face to face with the reality that your destructive habits of smoking or eating were threatening you with terminal diseases like cancer or diabetes, doesn't it make sense that you would want to immediately transform your habits and eliminate those toxins from your life? This is the point that James is making. That the humiliation of the wealthy, the reduction from being people of wealth and money and status and standing uh, in the community, the being reduced to being somebody who is unimportant and insignificant and weak and oppressed and persecuted and poor, a nobody, that is the most spiritually healthy transformation that a person can experience. We shouldn't aspire to wealth and admire the wealthy. It's those who are going through the challenging, stressful, anxious circumstances of poverty who are the most to be envied because their lives are being the most transformed into the image of Jesus as they respond with faithfulness and wisdom. And so how do we do that? How do we inoculate ourselves against the spiritual disease of affluenza? My solution is radical generosity. Right? James is writing to people where other people are coming and taking their money and taking their stuff and destroying their status and standing in society. And so they are being forcefully humiliated into poverty. Right? And it, James is saying, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Don't lament your loss of wealth. Don't grieve it. That, that's not where your safety and security came from anyway. It comes from your relationship with me. So that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You should brag about that. Here's the thing, nobody's taking our money or our stuff. Nobody's destroying our status and our standing. And so the question for us is, if nobody's gonna take it, are we willing to give it up in order to experience the kinds of circumstances that can make our faith strong and transform us into the image of Jesus, which is a life of loving God and loving ourselves as beloved, loving each other, and loving the world, which is the place where real life is found. Are we willing to do that? And I'm not saying that everybody in the room has to sell everything they have, though God may call some of us to that. 
Jesus looked in the eyes of a rich young man and said, your only spiritual barrier is that you have too much stuff. You should sell it all and prioritize following me ahead of having all this stuff. It says the guy went away sad because he had too much wealth. Jesus may actually call some of us to get rid of a lot of stuff in order to prioritize following him. But he may not. In another letter in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, listen, I, I'm not saying you should give away so much stuff that now you're in trouble and somebody needs to support you. What Paul says is, all I want is a recalibration of what it means to have enough. I want the wealthy to downgrade their expectation of enough through their acts of generosity that will upgrade the expectations of the poor of what it means to have enough. James says, or Paul says, all I want is there to be equality. Are we willing to engage in radical generosity until there is equality in the community? Because James says, that's where the good stuff is to be found. In verse 12, he says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial of poverty because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who endures the trial of poverty, who lives a life of openness and dependence on God in a way that makes their faith strong and transforms them into the image of Jesus through the wisdom that God gives them. Blessed is the one who endures the trial of wealth with its allure and its greed and who responds with radical generosity and faithfulness to Jesus so that their faith grows strong and they're transformed into the image of Christ, which is the image of a life of love. Jesus says that's where the real life is to be found. He, he says they'll receive a crown of life. He's, he's talking not about a gold crown with jewels. He's talking about a laurel wreath that was awarded to the victorious athletes at the Olympics. He says the people who are willing to live like that are the ones who are really live, winning at life. And you will experience life, deep, rich, meaningful, robust, abundant life if you embrace single-mindedly God's wisdom on how we relate our faith to our finances. That's what we will experience. We'll experience now in this world as we live ever deeper into a life of loving God with more and more of our heart. Loving ourselves as those who realize that we have been embraced by God without finding fault. Loving each other in relationships of mutual submission as equals. Equally unimportant, insignificant nobodies in the community of faith who are just lifting each other up. And as we as a community love the world with the sacrificial love of Jesus that's willing to give up everything so that other people can experience the love of God, Jesus says there's no better life to live than that one. And you can experience it now in ever increasing ways as you allow God to do that transformative work in your life and you will experience it one day fully, finally, freely and forever when Jesus returns and the world is transformed and those who have been shown to be faithful who have lived God's wisdom in the power of the Holy Spirit will be those who experience life for eternity like you could have never imagined. So how do we respond to a message like this?
Well, I think all of us have questions to ask about our own lives and the way our faith relates to our finances, to figure out the reality, how to live into the reality that the quality of our life with God is not dependent on our financial status, but on our faith status. And so as the first step in that journey, we want to take an offering right now. Now, I I don't want you to feel manipulated. I want the band to come forward and the ushers can begin to get ready. I don't want you to feel manipulated. What I don't mean is that I expect you to give more than you would have. Some of you have already noticed we didn't take an offering this morning. Um, If you were a guest, if you're here as a guest, Southridge is not your faith community. I want zero dollars from you. Do not give. This isn't about getting your money. Um, If you came this morning planning to give, I want you to give zero dollars more than what you came to give. This isn't in, this isn't, the goal isn't to guilt you into giving more. What I want us to do in these next minutes as we take up a financial offering together is I want us to give in a different attitude of spirit. I want this giving to be symbolic, to be a spiritual practice that says to God, My life with you matters more to me than this money. And so as I give this money to you, I want it to represent a whole new way that I am going to begin to think about the relationship between my faith and my finances. I want this to represent the fact that I'm giving not just my money, I'm giving all of myself to you. This is an act of saying, God, make me a single-minded Single, make me single-mindedly faithful to following Jesus. Transform me in my relationship with my money. So as we give, let's give as an act of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this moment that we do every week. But this morning we're letting go in a brand new way. We're symbolically letting go of the grip that our finances have on our life. So even as the bag goes around, even people, God, who aren't going to put anything in because they're not giving or giving somewhere else or giving in another way or whatever, I pray, God, that the passing of that bag might be symbolic of the willingness to empty ourselves and our lives for you to become single-minded followers of Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name for the life that Jesus promises. Amen.